0: You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com.
1: So, before we begin, I always like to do a quick kind of overview of kind of where we have been. So we're not going to do like the full book of Exodus like we have been, but what happened in chapter 13 and like where are we ending? Like what's the last thing that happened and then we jump into this passage.
0: Like, are you asking to review what last week's teaching was?
1: Yeah, just like what happened in chapter 32, like as we go into this teaching, like what what were we ended with? What was the last thing, like the last taste in our mouth?
0: Well, in chapter 32, this is the famous story from the Israelites who worshiping the golden calf while Moses has been gone for a long time on the mountain talking with God. Um, and so it basically ends with, Yes, Moses destroying the first stone tablets, grinding up the calf, making them drink the gold powder in the water, um, and being extremely distraught and trying to intercede for them. And even asking God to blot him out of the book if he won't forgive their sin. But then God saying, um, I will blot out of my book those who have sinned, but you like go on, lead the people. Um. So that's kind of setting the stage. So it was a horrendous event after
2: thirty-two.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. So we see that God saved them out of Egypt and that this was kind of, Kim kind of mentioned this is this is like the Israelites fall. This is when they've like sinned against God and God has Um, brought his judgment upon them so like the very last verse says that the Lord sent a plague and so that's like the last taste that we have in our mouth that our that being close to God and being close in proximity to God is dangerous and yet God wants to be close and so like we have this kind of problem that arises like how do we get close to God and be in God's presence and yet don't die. And so it's like we can't live with God, but we can't live without God. So what's the solution? And so as we move into this chapter, we've kind of got that taste in our mouth of like what is going to happen next? If that's the problem that we're facing, what is going to happen next in Exodus? And so these two chapters, um, I kind of divided them up into different sections that I will talk talk through. And it's kind of chronological, but then in the middle of it, it kind of gets a little less chronological. So I'll kind of give you that outline so that as I'm talking, you can kind of understand where I'm going with things. Um, and so the first section is God's command to leave Sinai and that's chapter 33, one through six. And then the next section is God comes near, but not fully in the tent of meeting 33, seven through 11. And then Moses intercedes on behalf of the people this is thirty three twelve through 34, 9. So he's not interceding the whole time, but that whole check, like little bit is where Moses and God are talking. The next one is God restores his covenant, thirty three seventeen through thirty four twenty seven, And then the next portion of scripture is Moses' shining face, um, which is um, 34, 29 through 25. 35, sorry. Um, And so that's kind of like the big sections we're going to walk in. I'm going to read some of those sections and then talk about it. And others are kind of too long that I'm just going to kind of have you like have in your head. And then I'll talk about it. And if we have questions, we can always circle back to them. Um, And so if we look at the first few verses, chapter 33, 1 through 6, I'm going to go ahead and read those. Says the Lord, "Said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom I have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the pezrites the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." I'm just going to stop there and kind of talk about what's going on here. And so here we see that the very first thing in this chapter is God's command to leave Sinai. And what's interesting about this is that we're kind of coming off of the Lord's judgment. And this kind of next section almost is like a reminder of God's faithfulness and his... Um, forgiveness and mercy. That's like the very first things that he kind of comes out of his mouth is his command to depart, to go up from here and go to the promised land. And so regardless of their sin in chapter 32, God is saying, I am faithful to my covenants. I am faithful to the promises that I have said that I will do. And so he says, I will make sure that I Do, as I say, and as I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that there will be a promised land that you will go to. But here's the catch. In verse 2, it says, I will send an angel before you to drive out all of these nations. And then at the end, it says, but I will not go out among you, lest I consume you on the way. And so he says, yes, I will fulfill my promises, but here's the catch because of your sin. That instead of my presence, an angel will go before you and I will not be the one to go with you. Because if I were to go with you, I would consume you. And so here you see God's mercy and judgment. It's like the two sides of the same coin. You see that in his mercy, he actually isn't coming into the camp because if he came into the camp, he would demolish them. He would consume them because of their sin. And so by him staying away and being removed slightly, he is being gracious and merciful to make sure that his people get to the promised land. Um, And so here we see those kind of two characteristics of God. And so that's kind of where it leads us. Then we see in verse 4, we see when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. I love that word disastrous. Um, I think that's just such a key word. The people, you kind of see how their hearts were different. They, they made the calf because they wanted the presence of God, but it was in the wrong way. They needed God's presence, and yet they went about it in the wrong way and worshiped and committed adultery. And so here they understand just, I think, coming off of the Lord's judgment through the plague, they understand and are mourning and repentant. And so um, it says that no one put on ornaments. And so basically what this means is a lot of times when people are in mourning over a death or something very horrible has happened, they put on plain clothes. They don't wear jewelry. It's an outward sign of an inward heart. Um, And so here we see that the people are understanding the consequences of their sin. And then verse 5, it says, For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. For if a single moment I should go among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. So now we see that the Lord is commanding them to do that. and So the Lord does ask us to repent of our sin. And then in verse 6, it says, Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And so we see here that as they begin the journey from Sinai onto the promised land, the Lord has asked them to remove their ornaments and that um, they have removed them willingly. And then it's not just for a short period of time, but it's an onward journey all the way to the promised land. And I think what we can take to that is even us as believers are supposed to have an attitude of repentance as we walk um, in this life until we see Christ face to face. And so it's this idea of this continual attitude and repentant heart towards the Lord. Um, So it lasts the full journey. And so we come to the end of verse six, and we see this dilemma that God's presence isn't fully with them, that he's not going to the promised land with them, and yet his promise is that they will get to the promised land. And so right now, what he said is that They will, in fact, get to the promised land, which is their final destination, and it will have all the blessings that God has promised, the land flowing with milk and honey, but without God's presence. So remember that, God's blessings without God's presence. Remember that, God's blessings without God's presence. We'll come back to that. Um, And so we're here at this same dilemma, that God wants to be with his people, that God wants to be with us. And yet there's this sin and consequence of sin that keeps us separated. So now what? And so that kind of takes us into the next section of the passage, um, 33, 7 through 11, which is the tent of meeting. And so within the tent of meeting, um, a couple of things to note here, not going to read this section, but it's the short one, um, is that we need to understand that the tent of meeting is a poor substitute for the tabernacle. There's in the first, in verse seven, it says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. There's a lot of outside, far out, outside repeated. And I think that idea is, so that we understand that it's not in the middle. If you were to look at the book of Numbers, and I think what has been outlined in Exodus, you would know that God's presence in the tabernacle is supposed to be in the middle of his people. So in the middle of their camp was where the tabernacle would be set up and where they would be able to meet and see God's presence, and the tribes of Israel would be surrounding it. And so for the tent of meeting to be outside of the camp, is an important understanding that God could not fully be within the middle of his people, that he couldn't dwell with his people. There was this outside um, portion to it. Um, But what's interesting about it is although it's outside of the camp, it's closer than Sinai. Um, And so that's an interesting understanding of that. And obviously here in this passage, we see Moses go back up to Sinai and meet with the Lord. But the tent of meaning is almost a um substitute and temporary solution um that God has put up um two benefits um that the tent of meeting has for the israelite people it's so interesting here because you wouldn't think that it would have some benefits but it does and i think what that demonstrates is that even when the lord is disciplining us or trying to work through that There are things that he's teaching us within that. And so one of those is that they got the grace of being able to see Moses go into the tent and meet with God. They got to see the pillar of cloud directly come down. Um, And so there was this visible, uh, they could look and see that Moses was actually doing his job, that he was actually meeting with the Lord. And so it renewed a respect as Moses as the leader and mediator between God and Israel. Um, and it was a direct line that they could see. Um, and then the second thing is that it provided them to have to individually say that I will worship Yahweh. They had, if they had something that they wanted to talk to God about, they had to, in their tent, get up and walk towards the tent of meeting and talk um, with um, Moses or um, I think it was Joshua who was outside of the tent um, and so those were kind of two of the benefits of even though the tent of meeting was a substitute for what the final and the hope would be um, that it provided still in this moment. Um, the other thing that's important to notice here is we've kind of talked a little bit um, about this but we see here that in verse 11, it says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And so we see that the reflection of their sin in chapter 32 does not reflect on Moses, that Moses is still considered right before God's eyes, that he doesn't have the same consequence that the people of Israel had. Um, and that'll be important as we work out into the next session. Um, and then I know there was a couple of questions of what does it mean for Moses to... To speak to God face to face and then not be able to see god 's face i 'm not a hundred percent sure, but I do believe um, that it's this it 's trying to communicate this relational closeness that Moses had to God um, without him he 's not fully seeing the face of God um, a lot of times in scripture, God is described using human terms so that we might understand him, but God is not actually a face or a hand or those kind of things. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that um, later when we see that Moses um, ask for God's glory. Um, and so that's the tent of meeting. The next section, which is thirty three twelve 12 through 23, this is where Moses intercedes as priest for the people. What's interesting about this section um, is that if you remember back to our study on Exodus chapters 1 through 4 when Moses was um, going before the Lord, going back and forth, um, talking at the burning bush. there He was using um, an ancient Near Eastern bargaining technique. And that was this idea of you start with something small and then you get a yes and then you start with the next thing. You get a yes and then you finish with the final thing that you want. And so you saw him doing that. Um, when he interceded at the burning bush. And you actually see that happen um, here in this section. Um, And so that's kind of helpful in kind of timeline as they're going back and forth. Um, That's kind of how it's working out. Um, And so another couple things about Moses that are important to understand in this section that it shows us is that um, he was considered before God sinless, blameless, or righteous in some capacity. Obviously, we know he was still a human, and so he was not completely sinless, but God had called him to a specific role as the priest of Israel, and coming off of the Israelites' sin in 32, that consequence was not on him. Um, who had Psalm 24, 3-4? through 4? Would you mind reading that?
2: Who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false.
1: Mm, thanks, Amber. So that translation says hill, but all other translations say mountain. And so it's this idea, it's referring back to Moses of those who can ascend to the Lord, those who can go up to the mountain are those that are clean, righteous, blameless. Um, and we obviously see here that as Moses as priest, he's a type of Christ. Christ is our pri- is our high priest. Um, and we know that Christ and Jesus is um, the pure one. He's the one that is perfectly blameless and righteous. um, And he can see um, God face to face. Um, And so that's kind of one of the things that we see in Moses here as a type of Christ looking forward um, to who Christ is. Um, And then the next thing I want to talk about is the word favor and name. You see this often come up. I think it's like six or seven times that you see the word favor Um, I had to do a little bit of a word search. It was just a a quick one. But um, the definition of favor um, is approval or support or like of something. It could be preference um, or to uh, show approval or preference for. um, Or even to give something that wasn't like deserved. It goes like above and beyond. Um, And so I think in this particular what it shows us here is this favor is that Moses had been accepted by God and that he um was in God's presence and so that's the idea is he was accepted before God and um he was the preference and so does someone have Matthew three seventeen go ahead Melia Matthew three seventeen and
0: behold A voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased.
1: Mm. So this verse is from Jesus' baptism when uh, God the Father sends the Spirit. And he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so I think that's an idea that Moses is a type of Christ. Showing that Christ gets the favor of the Father. That he is fully accepted, fully approved. He is the preference before God the Father. And that when he is our priest, that is now what we get. Is that we get that relational closeness. That God calls us by name. That we are God's favored one Um, Um, And I think that's such a gift to understand that Christ does that first and because we get to hide underneath Christ, we also get that same favor um, and ability to talk with God and have God's presence close to us. Um, The next part is a little bit confusing. Um, I actually wanted to read it in a different version because I think it helps us to understand it. Um, But this little section, I'm going to call it Moses' selfless plea. Um, And here we see him also as a type of Christ. So I'm going to actually read Exodus um, 33, 12 through 16 in the New Living Translation. It says, One day Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, Take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You have told me, I know you by name, and I look favorably on you. If it is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. The Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses and, I, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me, and your people if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets, us, sets your people and me apart from all other peoples on the earth so I thought the New Levine translation was just a helpful. It kind of drew out what the Hebrew was kind of saying behind it. And so we see here that when Moses first goes before the Lord, he says, who shall go with me? Um, and the Lord promises that he will go with Moses singularly. It says, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I'll give you rest and everything will be fine for you. And so we see in this moment that when Moses is interceding. He is the favored one. So God is promising, I will go with you, but I'm not going to go with the people. And so what Moses says next is shocking. Um, and he says, My, um, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct and I your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And so Moses actually denies God's um, offer to go with him and says, we, I don't want to go unless the whole nation of Israel goes with me. And he goes back and says that it is because... God's presence with the people is better than God's blessing. So he denies this idea that he could get to the promised land with the people and have just the blessings of God. He knows that the blessings of God are in no way a comparison to the presence of God. And so it is better to withgo at all from the promised land rather than to go and just have God's blessings. Um, But that God's presence is the higher good, is the higher option. And so in Moses' foresight, he understands that it's God's presence that is the key, not God's blessing. Um, And so he forgoes um, God's promise and God's closeness so that the whole nation might know God and have that relational closeness. And this reminds me a lot of Philippians 2, 5 through 11.
0: Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every nation bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the
1: Father. Awesome. Thank you. So here we see that Moses is a type of Christ in that he selflessly denied the promise so that the whole nation could come. And Moses didn't die, but Christ died. So we see that Christ gave away his um, his throne and everything in heaven, so that he could come down, and so that all of us could know God's presence. And so we see that Moses was just the small version of what Christ would eventually be. And so here in this uh, section, we see that it is God's presence that is the key. Um, And so we've been kind of seeing throughout the book of Exodus that God's presence is getting closer and closer to the people, and that is the key to um, Exodus and really to the whole Bible, that God wants a relationship with each one of us, and yet our sin is what separates it. And so um, we know that now, because of Christ that we get the Holy Spirit, and now that we are the new tabernacle, and so that as the Holy Spirit comes in believers, that is what um, God's presence dwells within us, and now we can have what Moses had, but even to a fuller extent, and one day we will see that, see God face to face, and so um, this will kind of be key for later, but Heaven is equal to God's presence, and hell is God's absence. And so all things good are from God, um, and everything bad is God's absence. And so that'll be helpful as we talk through um, the next section when se- when Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, I will show you all of my goodness. Um, and so I think throughout this section, we know that God's judgment is his lack of presence, and God's favor is his presence. Um, And so I'll say that again. God's judgment is his lack of presence. And God's favor is his presence. So we can even see that in Romans. That a lot of times we think the judgment of God is a lot of times like a lightning bolt or something like that. And it can be. But a lot of times when we see God's judgment, it's actually because he's removing himself from the situation. When God is present, he is there and gives life and goodness, fruitfulness, all those things. When he is absent, that is when we see death and disease and all the things um and so this is kind of going back but even in chapter 32 um god had offered to moses that he would start a new nation out of moses and he also denied that knowing that he wanted god's faithfulness to these people if he could um and so that is part of moses's intercession um And then we get to the part where Moses asked to see God's glory. Here in this section, what is happening is um, that Moses is actually asking for a visual representation of God. Um, But we know that God is not visual. He is spirit. And so what Moses is asking for would later come in Christ, but wasn't the moment for it now. So he's asking for a visible image, but what God reveals instead, what he means by God's glory, is that God reveals his name and who he is. So he displays not his actual face, but he displays who he is, his character. Um, and so it says, He says, You my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom to show mercy. Um, and here we kind of see that they use human terms like his hand, back and face. And these are just for us to understand, um, what is happening. And so you see, it's like a good father shielding Moses, knowing that Moses can't actually see God face to face yet. Um, and so, um, sorry, I lost my place for a second. Um, And then the other point within this section that is important is that um, this is a part of why idolatry is so bad or making an image of who God is. Because God is spirit and God has put his image within us and then would later um, come as Jesus. Um, You can see the heinousness of their sin in 32 that they would think that they could make God into a calf Um, that they could show who God was into the lifeless form of the calf. Um, And so, it's an important thing. Um, Moving on to the next section. Um, So, I'm still within Moses' interceding. Now I'm going to actually skip ahead into verse 9. And so, in verse 9 of 34, it says, And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So this is kind of the last plea. Like, Moses has gone before the Lord once, twice, and then this is the third. Like, I... I'm asking that you would forgive and pardon iniquity and in our sin and that you would take us as your inheritance, that you would redeem us into the people so that you would go with us. Um, and we actually have already seen that the Lord um, has said yes to his request. So if you look back in thirty three seventeen, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Um, and so before Moses asked for his glory, you see that the Lord does in fact say that he will renew um his covenant with his people. Um and then now we are changing and kind of going back in this um part of it, we're gonna talk about how God restores his covenant. And so we're still within the same passage of scripture. I was just kind of jumping between Moses' intercession within that passage, and now I'm switching to God's um restoring his covenant. And so we do see that he has said yes. Um, and then within the first part of 34, uh, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Um, and so one of the things that I was really appreciative of uh, the discussion because that was something I was going to touch on is the importance of the broken um, tablets and just what that symbolizes. And so, um, when Moses broke the tablets, what that symbolized was that the covenant was actually broken. So we saw when God made the covenant with his people, it was a lot like a marriage ceremony. Um, and that it was both parties had seen the covenant, what size of the covenant or the vows of the covenant and said, yes, I will participate. Now one party, the people of Israel have forego they totally broke their side of the covenant and so that's the idea is that the covenant was completely annulled broken and cut off and so when the lord said to moses cut for yourself two tablets it's actually his mercy that is saying i will once again um and it's actually not a covenant renewal because that would signify that the covenant was still intact but it's actually a covenant restoration, which means that it was a complete new covenant of the same covenant. If that, does that make sense? Like It's this idea that it's something fresh and new, but of the same thing. But he's asking the people to vow again to what they have asked, or what he has asked. Um, <coughs> sorry, Susie. And so we see here in verse in chapter 34 in verse 6 and 7 That the Lord is, in fact, a God that is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And so we see that God does, in fact, restore his covenant, and it's through Moses' intercession with God that he is able to pardon their iniquity. That now he has said, okay, I will tabernacle among you. I will not just stay in the tent of meeting, but I will come and dwell among you in the tabernacle. Um, so I think some things that we can take away from this um, is actually John one fourteen. Would someone be willing to read that? Um, and the Lord we
2: came and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth.
1: Mm. So this is talking about Jesus and how he is God's glory revealed. And so what that means is that he is God's name, God's person, God's character revealed in human flesh, that we might see it. Um there's a song called A Thousand Names. You might have heard it, but one of the lines in there, I wanted to just quote. It says, you are the second Adam here to lead us home. You are Yahweh's glory now revealed in flesh and blood. And so it's like this reference of when God showed his glory, he revealed who who he was so that Moses could know him, so that we could know him, and through Christ he is God's glory. He is Yahweh. He is the same God and he is revealed um, to us in Christ in flesh and blood to walk the life that we could never walk, to do what we could never do. Um, and so we see that God does, in fact, restore his covenant, that he does want to dwell with his people and that he does it through the intercession of Moses and through the priesthood. Um... And so then after in verse 10 of 34, it says, and he said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as I have not created in all the earth or in any nation and all the people among you whom you are shall seek the work of the Lord for it is an awesome thing that I will do. We won't read this verse, but it reminded me a lot of Ephesians. I think it's in Ephesians 3 where it talks about that, how God will do more than we could ever ask or imagine. Um, It's this idea that God always goes above and beyond what we could ask for. Um, And um, so that was just a random aside that I was thinking about when I was thinking about that. Um, And so now we see that um, it kind of switches into... um, like commandments. And so we see a lot of what has been said in the original covenant. We actually see it summarized here in this section. So, um, kind of when the 10 commandments and the covenant were originally given, we see a lot of these, um, are, um, I don't, I don't know how to say the word, but it's some big word. And it basically just means that they're like, like small words, that represent the whole, essentially, in literature. Um, it's just a funny word for it, but I don't remember what it is. So if anybody knows it, feel free to yell it out. Um, but it's just this idea that these commands that follow are the summary of the law that has already be given, been given or the covenant that has already been given. So you see pretty clearly um, commandments 1 and 2, um, as he talks about it in verses 11 uh, through fifth, through really 17, Um, he says, um, that, um, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God, and so it's this idea that he's bringing up the commandment again that there's only one God, and that is Yahweh, and he is the only God that you shall worship, and that he is a covenant keeping God, and that he is a jealous God that is part of who he is, that he will not let anyone else be worshiped, that he is the only one that shall be worshiped. Um, and so what he's saying is that don't make a covenant with any other gods of any other land. So they're getting ready to go on their journey from Sinai, continue it on to the promised land, and they're about to go, and the Lord will give them, give over the Canaanites, the Hittites, all of these people groups to Israel. And so he's just reminding them, stay true, I just, re- I just restored this covenant, you've already broken it once, um, and here is the commandment yet again. Then you see commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. So you see that summarized again, that you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Um, And so it's just a reminder of the original uh, covenant that was made. Um, And so what's important about the laws that are also listed here is they're actually identity laws. So we know that we've kind of seen throughout this section and throughout Exodus that God is making a covenant people, a kingdom of priests, a people that is known to be God's people. And they are God's people because God's presence is with them. That's what makes them um, God's people, is that God's presence is with them. And that's why Moses said like he refrained and wanted the whole nation to go because they are not God's people unless God's presence is with them. And so when you see these laws, you are seeing an identity that God is reminding them of who they are um, politically, religiously, and then through marriage. So he's saying that you will be ruled only by me, Yahweh, um, and that you will only worship Yahweh. So that's the religious laws and the political laws, and then through marriage. So you'll see that where he commands that, um, in verse 16, um, and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after other gods and make... Um, your sons who are after other gods, their gods. And so this idea of not entering into marriage um, with other people groups. Now one of the questions that arises here is that does God allow for interracial marriage? And I think sometimes this gets taken out of context. And so what we need to understand is that if we look back even to when they came out of Egypt in the Exodus, that there was a mixed multitude. And so it's less about race and more about who do they worship. So we know that the Israelite camp was a mixed multitude. Those that were Israelites by um, uh, genetics, that's probably not the best word, but like by line lineage. And then there were those that came out of Egypt with them that worshiped God and Yahweh. And they were considered to be part of the Israelite camp. And so what God is saying is not that they can't marry outside of their race, but that they um, cannot marry um, those that are not worshiping Yahweh. Um, and so that would be similar to like the command in the New Testament to not be unequally yoked um, with someone who doesn't believe in Yahweh because they will pull you away from the faith and from worshiping who God is. Um, so that's kind of how you see these commands being an identity. God is trying to show them that do not wander this is your identity for me to stay in your presence means that you worship me, that you are under my rule and that you um, are in a covenant with me. Um, and then we see kind of that it goes into some feast and it lists the feast out that they are to practice. Um, and so the feast here, are identity worship, they are the ones that allow them to remember where they've come and who they are. And so you see that the list Um, The Passover feast um, is one of the first ones that they are to remember, and they are to remember um, the cost of salvation, that the blood was shed over the door um, for their redemption, and that was what was rescued. Um, And so you see that through um, the firstborn, um, and as they uh, redeem their firstborn, they are to look back at the Passover and to remember what God did in the exodus. Um, then you see Sabbath that God provides rest from oppression, um, and that he is able to provide rest for his people. Um, and Sabbath rest is often, um, we don't really have a lot of time to like go down this bunny trail, but it's anti-cultural, like in, especially in an agricultural society where a lot of times during the harvest season, um, I think it actually says that that's what it is saying, it says, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and harvest you shall rest. And so that specific, it's very easy in those times. Those were the busiest seasons, so it would be easy to work seven days a week. But God is saying, you trust me for provision and your crops, not your work. Um and so that was a reminder of who God's people were. And then the festival of weeks was for God's provision that He provides um for the people. Um, and so they were to offer their first fruits of the wheat harvest as a heart attitude of we trust that you'll provide for us. Um, and so it was all about who they worship and who they are ruled by um, and that they would keep their covenant. And so that's why those laws are included. Um, and then lastly, we come to the last section, um, Moses' Shining Face in 34, 29 through 35. Um, and so this is such a interesting um, part of it. I really enjoyed kind of studying up on it a little bit more. But I'll read this section. It says When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. I think this section reminds us that God's presence was still not fully with the people. They still were scared of God's holy presence, and they were scared even of Moses' face. And so it's just a reminder that they were veiled in some capacity to God's presence, although he had promised and started to restore the covenant, that there was this veil. I think things that we can take from Moses um, in this section is that The presence of God transforms us. When we see the glory of God, when we see his character, when we look to him and we see him for who he is, that is what transforms us. Um, And when we see that happening in our own lives as believers now, we kind of talked earlier about how as believers now we are the tabernacle. God's spirit dwells in us. Um, And we'll read 2 Corinthians in a little bit. Um, but it's this idea that if we are in Christ, we are unveiled. We get to see him face-to-face, face and he changes us. And when he transforms us because we see his glory, then we get to go to other people, and we shine forth, and they see a difference because we have been in the presence of God. And so when we think about sanctification, when we think about this transforming power that happens by the Spirit, it's not something like we pull our... Like boots on and keep going. Like it's not our effort, although it is partially our effort. But it's the spirit in us that is transforming us and giving us the right heart and the power to obey. And so, when we are part when we have the spirit and we are partaking in the rivers of grace, is what I like to call them, and that would be fellowship, Bible reading, prayer, corporate worship, and the ordinances. Those are all ways in which we, by the Spirit, um, experience God's presence. Those are the ways that we get to see God's glory revealed now and today. Um, And so, I think you really just see in this section the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working. You can kind of see that God the Father wants to be close. He sends the Son, Jesus, to do what we cannot do as our high priest and as our sacrifice and so much more. And then now the Holy Spirit living inside of us that we might experience the glory of God for who he is. Um, And the best part yet (laughs) is that he's still not even as close as he's going to be one day. Um, And that's the hope. Um, and so Emily, can I have you read Second Corinthians three? Yes, remind me it's
2: starting at verse seven through eighteen. That's what I thought I should make sure. Okay, great. Second
1: Corinthians three,
2: seven through eighteen. Now if the ministry of death For what, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gain the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were, were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Mm -hmm. And we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes
1: from the Lord, who is the spirit, I love how he refers to like this of what's happening right here in Moses' shining face, the ministry of death, like it's like such a small picture of like what is to come, like yes, it had its purpose and it had its understanding, and it was important for the Israelites to see this, but it's such a small taste of what is to come, um and such a gift. To know that like now we get to sit with an unveiled face. If we know Christ, that we can go boldly, that we have the spirit, that we have freedom, um, and that we get to sit in his presence with an unveiled face. Now, obviously, we still don't see God fully for who he is. Um, and the hope is um that one day we will. Um, would someone be willing to read first John three two?
0: Yeah. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is.
1: Mm. Um, And so that's the hope, that we are being transformed, because we get to experience who God is now through the Spirit and through the church. And that he is slowly transforming us until we will one day see him face to face, and that will be our reality Um, and so that is the hope that we are being transformed by seeing God's glory now through the spirit. Um, and then that one day we will see him, um, face to face. Um, and we have to end on revelation 21, one through three. Do you remember? Sorry. No, you're good. That's great. Um,
0: And God himself shall be with them and
1: be their God. Mm. And that's the point of it all. <laughs> that, he, that we would be with him, dwelling with him. That that is the place where God wants to dwell. Is that he wants to dwell with his people. And that one day he will fully sit there and dwell with us. Let me pray. Father, uh, we thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word. Um, to get to see you um, for who you are um lord we thank you that we can plead and we can pray show me your glory show me who you are that i might obey you um lord i pray that that would be our heart's cry that we would see you for who you are and that we would become like you and that we would long for your presence one day lord i thank you for your scriptures i thank you for the book of exodus i thank you for the new testament i thank you for the ways that you speak to us in our own language that we might know you and see you i thank you that even in our sin, um, that it cannot separate us from you, that you have made a way that you might dwell with us. Lord, I thank you that it's your presence that brings life. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded um, that your presence is our ultimate hope. Um, Lord, I pray that we would pursue you, that we would love you, um, and that you would help us each and every day. We love you, in Jesus' name, amen. Does anybody have any questions? I can't guarantee I will be able to answer them. But if you have any lingering questions, I'd love to hear them and I can write them down. We can, we can talk more about them. If not, no pressure to, but or if you have reflections, that's fine too. (laughs) Either is fine.
2: No questions, but teaching is really, really helpful. And this Thanks. passage this week to me has just been so powerful in my own life. Just like in that, like plea, like Lord, if You are not with me, like what, yeah, what even doing, you know? Yeah. And just the hope that He is really, He is with me, and that He's transforming mm-hmm. me um, has just been really powerful this week.
1: Agreed. Agreed. Well, that is it. Thank you for coming to Women's Bible Study. I pray that next week we'll be in person on Wednesday. It'll be our last section of Exodus, and then we'll have completed the entire book of Exodus.